Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Jarrett Weiselman. After a childhood spent in front of the television or at a movie theater, Jarrett magically found a way to get paid to watch films and TV shows. He was first an entertainment journalist for outlets like BuzzFeed and the New York Post. And now he has the best job in the world as the social media manager for Netflix. Jarrett shares the cool tricks of the trade at his job, which basically is watching and promoting amazing content for Netflix. And we go on some deep dives, including Tiger King and Love is Blind, two of my favorites. We talk about the Netflix shows we both love to watch, and he recommends ones that you may not have seen, but you should definitely check out. Okay, so I am here with Jarrett Weisselman. He is taking the time out of his quarantine schedule. (laughs) And what a quarantine it's been. How has it been for you, Jarrett? It's been good. You know, I, I'm very lucky. I, you know, I've been hidden um, in my home and so it has not really been too difficult. I haven't gone stir crazy yet, but I'm sure that's in the offing any day now. <laughs> yeah. It actually hit me today. I'm at three weeks to mm. tomorrow okay. and I officially think I went insane this morning. Yeah. I think we all have those moments, but you know, it's always a good reminder that we're all in it together and everyone is feeling as crazy as we are in those moments. Yes, you are correct. And let's face it, without Netflix, I don't know that oh. any of us would be surviving. Well, that is very kind and very not true, but we're happy to be of a service to people when they need us. Yeah, somebody somebody tweeted the other day, I just finished Netflix. Like I yeah. just got to the end of Netflix. <laughs> I keep seeing that and I really want to be like, really challenge extended because we have a lot of things that people, but it's it's a very... I would love to finish Netflix. I feel like I have a lot to watch still. My, my watch list never stops growing. So Same. I feel like if I watch Netflix every day until the rest of my life, I would never finish Netflix. That's that's what I think. That's the goal, I, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, listen, you know, the world has created the opportunity for us to theoretically finish. So we'll see how we do. Yeah. So we, before we dig into it, what is going on kind of on the inside? Like, are you carrying on as normal with work? Like, what's the talk about production that's going on now? You know, obviously you guys have tons of shows, but you're also in Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's no business as normal, right? Every, everyone is adjusting and adapting at all times. I think that what we're really just trying to do is, you know, be as helpful to our members as possible and just continue to give them, you know, great shows and great films that they can watch, whether they're originals or licensed content, and just really do our part to make, you know, this really, really hard situation as easy for people as possible in whatever small way we can. And we appreciate it. So how did you end up before we dig into the content? How did it yeah. seems like you have a dream job, right? You, you literally I feel very do. lucky. So I how did you, lucky. how did you, how did you come to Netflix? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, well, I was an entertainment journalist for 13 years before coming to Netflix. I worked at places like In Touch Weekly and the New York Post. And my last job was at BuzzFeed News. Um, and I just, following the 2016 election, you know, I kind of got a little bit tired about writing about what, you know, Madam Secretary means in the lens of Trump's America or white <laughs> looking, at, looking at everything through the lens of Trump's America. Um, but, you know, as many millennials didn't really feel like I had a whole lot of discernible skills aside from the fact that I was really good at Twitter and I watched a lot of television, but it really turned out that was exactly what Netflix was looking for. So I joined the team 
about two years ago. Uh, and I'm on part of a team. We run all of the brand social handles. Um, so anything that has the word Netflix in it in the United States is coming from my team, in addition to things like Strong Black Lead and Most, um, all of which you should all follow because they're run by brilliant, brilliant people. And yeah, so I've been doing that for about two years now, running the Netflix US Twitter and Facebook page and really getting in there and talking to our members every single day across all those platforms. And you're doing scripted and unscripted, right? You're covering all of it? Scripted, unscripted, films, television, all of it, all of it. So how far in advance do you get to see everything before it drops? I mean, it depends on the show or the film. You know, sometimes if it's an acquisition and we get it months ahead, sometimes it could be months ahead. Sometimes it's, you know, a couple weeks before. But, you know, one of the things that I really um, stick to, and I did this when I was a journalist also, you know, if my goal as a person on social, regardless of whether it's through my personal account or through a brand account, you know, if my goal is to meet the audience where the conversation is, I actually can't be that far ahead of our consumers. You know, I can't be watch things five months ahead of times because then when the title hits the service, I won't remember what I thought in that moment. So it's a bit of a combination of doing a lot of planning and then a lot of reactive at the same time. So typically I don't really watch stuff more than two weeks beforehand, just because we have such a, a volume of content coming and such a regular cadence of release every single week that I personally just need to stay as synced up with the audience as possible in order to be sort of in the same conversation with them at the same time. That makes sense. You tweeted something and I'm going to try to get some juice out of you (laughs) because it was, it rocked my world. It was not about Tiger King. It's about something Uh that you're watching now, unscripted documentary series that I don't know if this Uh is the exact quote, but it's blowing, it will blow our minds. I think so. I think (gasps) it's very, very true. When Um, is it coming out? It comes out this month. It comes out, some might say, April 17th. Mm -hmm. Um, It is tremendous. It's fun. It's escapist. It's it's really just a a fun, fun, fun watch that if you watch my Twitter account, again, around the week of April 17th, I promise you will have no, there'll be no mistaking what I was talking about. I could barely breathe. Okay. (laughs) So here's the question. So- Like you said, you're going to be tweeting right around the date that it drops. Netflix's mm. Netflix's Netflix's strategy is different than kind of, like I came up in traditional TV and cable TV. And, you sure, know, they can't wait to get the announcement out. You know, a year before, and then the, here's the trailer two months before, and then they keep teasing the trailer, and then they do the interviews with the stars. You know, it's like by the time it right. drops, you feel like okay, big deal. You guys have a very different strategy. So talk a little bit about Netflix's strategy. Well, I mean, you know, there's really no quote unquote Netflix strategy. There's title strategies and there's channel strategies and there's audience strategies. So what I can talk to you about is sort of just my perspective on it in terms of how I program what I do. And, you know, this obviously isn't a company rule, but my feeling is, you know, consumers really like immediacy and they really want to talk about something once they've seen it. And I think that, you know, traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was two promotional opportunities. You had Entertainment Tonight and you had People Magazine, right? And that was it. Those are the only places you could promote anything. It was billboards. It was, you know, magazine ads. It was TV ads. The, the media landscape has just changed so much. And there's such a constant influx of stimulus from new shows dropping to new channels announcing to now new streaming platforms that, you know, I feel like there's obviously 
an important runway for titles that people need to sort of get in their vernacular when it's new IP or if it's a talent that they love. But in general, the people, once you tell people something exists, the first thing you hear is, well, I want to watch it right now. So my feeling is I just like to reduce that window as much as possible. I like to be as sort of, you know, direct to consumers as I can and sort of in dealing with them and dealing with, you know, uh, followers and the audience and members, you know, for years and years across a bunch of different companies, there's an immediacy that is craved. And by doing a three month pre-launch window, it just no longer makes sense. You know, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way media works. That's not the way consumers think anymore. And so I try to truncate that because I consider what I do specifically a post-launch reactive job. So I always say that my real job starts once the title's on Netflix. And because of that, we really lean in heavily to post-launch to engage in, in a conversation and to amplify and sort of feed the fire in that way. And you guys do such a good job of it. I mean, you're not just creating Thanks. buzzworthy content, but that conversation that goes on. I mean, what I after I watched Tiger King, I could not wait to get on Twitter and search for yeah. the hashtags Netflix Tiger yeah. King because I wanted to see the memes. I wanted to see people's minds being blown. Love, Love is it, blind, Love is same thing. Yeah. And it just, it it's such a fun way to kind of extend the party, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. You know, like there's like the actual content and then the, the, the social media content. And they go absolutely. so well hand in hand. Is there a direct correlation between whatever's trending on Twitter and Instagram and what people are watching? I mean, I think, I think yes and no. I think what you're looking at is a subset of a very engaged user base. And I think that, you know, not everybody who watches our content is on Twitter or is on Instagram or, and you know, not everyone who watches a title wants to talk about a title. And conversely, some people talk about things that they haven't actually watched. And so I often find that, it's a bunch of different metrics, right? Are there certain things that are just so outsized in terms of popularity? There's, you know, that everyone is loving it and you see the groundswell. I think, you know, Tiger King is a great example right now. You just, it's so massive that you can't sort of say, oh, this is just people jumping onto a trend they have no idea about because they're talking about deep things about the show. So I always found that those are really important different things. I think viewership is one thing. I think social conversation is a totally other thing. And then I also think you have sort of that third bucket of stuff, which is just stuff that pierces the zeitgeist that could be huge on social, but maybe isn't huge on in viewership, you know, on any channel, but that's okay. I mean, if you look at, for example, like FX shows, you know, that's a network that lives and dies by its pedigree, not really by its ratings. And so if you have something like Fosse Verdon, which you know, not a ton of people watch, but the people who watched it were evangelists of it and talked about it every single week and came back and back. Exactly. So that's incredibly valuable too. They're, they're all valuable elements in the overall sort of brand identity of a company, but one isn't sort of always correlated to the other in my experience. Interesting. And I did raise my hand when you said that yeah. Fosse Verdon fans are evangelists because that was <laughs> in previously mentioned podcast, one of my favorite shows of last year, yeah. just incredible. So let's talk about Tiger King. So that sure. also happens to be huge online, but also happens to be, according to Netflix, the number one show trending on Netflix. Yeah. I mean, when, that, and that's been a real nice sort of uh, curtain that we've been able to pull back with the addition of trending rows and sort of really giving people insight into what everyone is watching. You know, that's been something that's been, I think, really helpful both for disco 
discovery, but also for visibility and sort of, you know, pulling back at that layer of, you know, I don't know what people watch on Netflix kind of narrative. Exactly. And I also think it's part of that. I don't want to be left out of the conversation. I know so many people who watched Love is Blind and Tiger King just because they needed to know what the hell was going on because everyone was talking about it. Absolutely. So let's talk about Tiger King first. When you saw that, I guess a couple of weeks before it came Mm -hmm. out, did you know, holy shit, this is going to be it? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, we, we never assume something is going to be a runaway hit. You know, I think we're always encouraged and excited when we see something that has just like a compelling story or an amazing narrative or an incredible production. You know, there are certain things that excite people, but you know, Tiger King very much like love is blind is one that everyone internally was just buzzing about, you know? And so it's always a great signal when people internally at the company are super, super buzzed about a show. It's a good sign that when we release it to the world, they'll also feel that. And we did. There was a podcast, obviously, Joe Exotic, which had come Mm -hmm. out a few years ago. I didn't know if you had a chance to listen to that. No. I mean, what's so funny is, you know, now that I have sort of really like read everything about it and watched the series and heard everything, this was a massive, massive story that I had never even heard about one time prior to the docuseries, you know, and now it makes me feel so stupid because I was like, there's a podcast I didn't listen to. There was an amazing article that I was not, you know, read in on. So I've gone back and done my due diligence now just to know as a fan. But this was brand new information to me. Yeah, I will say I listened to the podcast a few years ago. I think I stopped midway. I don't think I listened to the whole thing. I think it was a very good podcast and the guy was great that reported it. However, I think there's just certain things that work so much better for, with visuals. And these documentarians sure. were there from day one. I mean, they didn't even think this was going to be the doc that they started out to make. Yeah. And that's always my favorite story about a documentary, right? When they're like, we're just here to do this really cool thing about an animal farm. And then you're like, wait, I'm sorry, what's happening here? You know, like that's, yeah. that's the, that's the beauty of documentary filmmaking. I think in general is you have absolutely no control over the story you're telling, you know? And I think if you look at people like, you know, Moira and Laura who did making a murderer, you know, they worked on that for 10 years before we even saw an episode, you know? And that's really a story that shifted and changed over time. And then we came back for a follow-up series because the first series was so popular. And I think, you know, it's really the only genre that takes you as the filmmaker on as much of a ride as the consumer and the viewer do. So true. Are there things I was just thinking about um, how making a murderer changed, changed things. I mean, making a murderer was the first real deep dive, true crime. I don't remember. Maybe the jinx came before it. Um, it, was, it was around the same. It was like making a murder serial and the jinx exactly. all kind of happened. In Within sort of the a, same year. A, yeah. Did that open up the floodgates for Netflix in terms of the deep dive into true crime, these serialized high, you know, premium true crime series? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I couldn't speak to that just because I'm not on the content team, but what I will tell you is, you know, you could just tell the consumer appetite for that kind of storytelling was really, you know, triggered by those three titles. You know, I think what, you know, I think what everyone in entertainment does is you look towards things that are popular and sort of figure out how you do that for yourself. And so I think, you know, whether it was serial and completely changing the way podcasts, true crime stories are told and how popular they are and, you know, the jinx and making a murderer and, you know, the staircase, like the original true crime docuseries, which Netflix acquired last year with additional episodes and even 30 for 30 doing the OJ Simpson made in America. You know, I think what those things really do is show all of us 
that history and historical dramas can be as captivating and compelling and addictive as things, you know, scripted comedies and scripted dramas. And it just because something is true doesn't make it, you know, boring. That is, that's so true. (laughs) And defines my whole career. So (laughs) I wouldn't have a job otherwise. So in terms of Tiger King, back to Tiger King. So are you kind of journalistic slash agnostic when it comes to, do you need to be in your job? Like, can I say like, do you think Carol killed her husband? Like, are you, can you talk about things? I I mean, the way I discovered you was you were on bitch sets talking about love is blind, which I urge everyone to listen to. It's hilarious. And you kind of came out with some stuff, Um, but I wonder how much you feel like you can get in there with us or if you sort of have to just be standing back a bit. Well, I think, I think there's two things that, you know, as a brand, I think it's important to not editorialize your own content. I think, you know, the as a brand, our narrative is the narrative of the documentary, right? And the documentarians also did not sort of say one way or the other how they felt about that belief that Joe held. So I think it's important that, you know, there's alignment on a brand that is in step with the content itself. Me as myself, me as Jared, you know, I think that you can't watch anything like this and not, you know, not have an opinion. You can't watch Tiger King and not think, oh, one way or the other, and if Carol killed her husband, you can't watch Making a Murder and not think, oh, he's guilty or oh, he's innocent. You can't watch The Staircase and think he pushed her down the stairs or he didn't. You know, and I think that's the fun. I think the the important thing that I think keeps my team sort of on the pulse is finding the way to marry our personal sensibilities with our brand responsibilities. And I think that's where you get really interesting content because that's how you get a perspective without getting someone's bias, if that makes sense. Ooh. Okay. Having said all that, Jared, I'm asking Jared now, did Carol kill her husband? (laughs) You know, what's so funny is I don't know. I really don't know. I'm, and I remain unconvinced. I don't have any more additional insight that you guys have. I will just say that, you know, if I did kill my husband, by putting him in a meat grinder or feeding him to a tiger or something like that. The last thing I would do is talk about putting sardine oil on someone's shoes in order to make a tiger eat them on camera. You know, if I did do that, why would I then sort of give people a potential, you know, motive and means and opportunity to have that be a part of the narrative? Such a good call. And I will say as myself, not representing a brand, just so you're super clear, Michael Peterson, a hundred percent killed his wife. Okay. I think so. Just so we're clear. And I followed that from Sundance days. I was like early adapter. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you did, but if you didn't, um, NBC had this amazing scripted series called Trial and Error that starred John Lithgow. And I went so far under the radar, but it was one of the most- expert examinations of the true crime genre in a scripted way. And if you haven't watched it, I highly encourage you to go watch both seasons. The first season is based on Michael Peterson. The second season is sort of a more fantastical Black Widow story with Christian Chenoweth in the lead role. Both seasons are hilarious, but it's so, so smart. It's so smart. And what I love is that it is based on the staircase, but they use other tropes like from the Jinx yes. and other things. Right. It's Absolutely. so funny. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. Really good. When Making a Murderer came out um, and was super popular, I was talking to my aunt because we, my two aunts and I, we love Real Housewives. And yeah, my uncle same. was kind of like chirping in in the background, like, how can you watch Making a Murderer and watch Real Housewives? And for some reason in my head, it just occurred to me like, 
I need to make a parody. Uh, and so I made this video called Real Housewives of Manitowoc County. You can find oh it on God. YouTube. It got That's a lot so of hits. Good. We had so much fun, but we kind of used all of those tropes, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, I think what's really interesting, too, is reality television in general is a real <laughs> great equalizer because I think you always are surprised by the people who watch you know, unscripted, who watch Housewives, who watch 90 Day Fiance, who watch, you know, all of that kind of content. But at the same time, like you're still chronicling people's lives and they are in a sense the same thing. It's just a different way of presenting the same information. There's no difference between, you know, making a murderer and real housewives in the sense you're chronicling a story. It's just the characters you're following and the way you present it changes the perception of it as to something quote unquote highbrow or something quote unquote lowbrow. But, you know, I mean, we've followed, we've spent four years on Real Housewives of New Jersey following a court case that we know all the ins and outs of just the way we know all the ins and outs of, you know, the Manitoba cases. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I do see the parallels. Uh, yeah. And that's the thing. It's story. It's good characters, good storytelling. I mean, it just, exactly. it just works. So another big, huge water cooler hit that's was just rocked everybody's world was was Love is Blind. And it's yes. funny because I interviewed Carrie Wolf from Kinetic a couple of weeks before uh-huh. it came out. And I kind of downplayed it because it's just right. I didn't know sure. anything about it. I just heard Nick and Vanessa and I was kind of like, oh, I don't <laughs> care about them. But anyway, so <laughs> I freaking loved this series. I mean, when I say that first episode, when Cameron yeah. proposed to Lauren, I watched it with my daughter. Cause as I say, I'm mother of the year and we were underneath the covers cringing yeah. because we could not believe what we were seeing. And it just got better and better and Truly. better. So when you saw that, was that another one where you thought this is going to yeah, be something? I mean, what happened with Love is Blind is interesting because we actually got um, a sizzle before we got the episodes. And I'm sure everyone who listens to this knows, but just in case, a sizzle is sort of like a trailer that's designed to tease the entire show that's never external facing, it's just internal. And we got this five minute sizzle that basically took you from the pods to their real lives to a little bit of you know Mexico and the weddings. And it was just sampling. and. We could not stop watching this teaser. We could not stop showing the sizzle to more like, oh my God, you have to come here. Like we must have watched that sizzle 25 times, showing it to someone else every time. And to me, that's when you know something is legit. You know, the fact that like a five minute sizzle was really getting us that excited. We had a feeling, you know, that was another instance where we felt like that show was going to be a big hit. But, you know, What's crazy about, I mean, any programming, you know, scripted or unscripted is you really need people to attach themselves emotionally to the characters one way or the other. And if you don't develop emotional connections, you know, you can still enjoy watching something. But, you know, I I really fell in love with Lauren and Cameron over the course of that series. You know, I had really strong feelings about, you know, Jessica and Barnett and Amber and, you know, Giannina and Damien and all of these players that were so essential to the success of that show. You definitely need to have strong feelings either way. And, you know, we didn't know if that would happen in the very beginning. Um, and it was really encouraging to see that they did. It was really nice to see how much everybody loves Lauren and Cameron and loves their love story and really, you know, it, you know, I think a lot of people weirdly felt like they got like hope from watching that. Um, so it's just, it's been really, really cool. Are you allowed to give odds on how long you think 
some of these couples will last. I mean, sure. I mean, listen, I think, I think Lauren and Cameron are the real deal. Totally. I think that I think they're going to they have a baby are. like any day. They're I think get they found soulmates. Like they seem perfect for each yeah. other. And, and you have to remember too, you know, that show was filmed a long time ago. These couples have I now know. been married for over a year. And Can so they kind of, what the story is there. I wish I knew, to be okay. honest. I think it was just honestly like a slow post-production process, you know, because there's so much to come through. I mean, they filmed them. They filmed five couples, you know, over the course of months and months and months um, or a couple months. So they had to really figure that out. Sorry. Um, okay. So back to the couples. So what do you give Amber and Burnett? You know, it's so funny. When I watched them on the show, um, I was not that excited. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't think they're, they're, romance was as deep as I do now because I learned so funny. And I'll tell you what actually kind of turned my head on them is the fact that they are both avid cosplayers. And if you look on Amber and Barnett's Instagrams, they are constantly going to com cosplay conventions. They're always dressing up in couples costumes. Like they're both huge nerds. And I felt like that actually didn't come through on the show at all, which is fine. I don't know how it would have come up, right? They're getting <laughs> to know each other. But now seeing them in their life and seeing how many things they have in common and so many of the interests that they share, I actually think they're like in good shape too. That makes me happy. Yeah, I know, I, right? I, I put good odds on two nerds together. That changes oh, everything. I thought that's they were- That's what I said, exactly. Yeah, that's I had a I'm different saying. take on them. Totally, I did too. And so I think, you know, and that's what's really interesting about the ability we have to follow reality television show personalities off after the show ends through social media is you really do get to learn a different side of them. You know, there's no reason we need to see them as cosplayers in the context of love is blind for that to be interesting. <laughs> but in the aftermath and following them on their social media, it actually does deepen your belief in their relationship by seeing how many things they actually have in common beyond that initial attraction and beyond that initial relationship. And what about Janine uh, Malady? Oh, I love, I love Malady so much. She yeah, is meant know. for television. I mean, truly. What's she like, been so, doing with her life? She is a star. She is such she's a, star, a star, in my opinion. She's beautiful. She's really nice. She's obviously a little bit unhinged, as all of our good <laughs> celebrities are. You know, I don't know, because that's the one that um, has happened to the most off camera. You know, right. obviously, they found something in each other during the course of the show that they sort of got to really deepen off the show. Um, and so, so I don't know. I mean, I, I want nothing but the best for them. You know, I think what was interesting was they seem the most different as people, but then they also, you know, for them to come back together and then be together again for a year, they obviously found something in their normal lives that they tapped into on the show. And maybe it was just without the confines of the, you have to get married, you have to get your families on board, like the pressures of being on reality television, they were allowed their actual relationship to take shape in a way that was very powerful. Clearly. And did we have any clarity on why she needed to tear off a piece of her dress and give it to him? I still don't I, get that. I think that was supposed to be representative of the bow that he gave her when they proposed that oh. she tied around her wrist. Oh so I think that, I think that was, I think that was just a small lace metaphor. I love that she was in her alternate telenovela while all the show was going on. Oh, I know. The it best. was a great, I mean, she's such a person. She's such a character. I'm she's obsessed with her. obsessed. I will say I this. I feel like limited doses because everyone's like, where's the spinoffs? Where's the spinoffs? Yeah. I, I don't need the spin. I like that. I only know them in this context. I don't really need to see hanging with the Hamiltons and the whole, like I want a fresh new cast. I want to go on a new adventure. 
For sure. I like a check-in every now and then. Like if Lauren and Cameron are going to have a baby, I want to know about that. You know, if people have like life developments, I want that, but I don't need, you know, a constant series. That's for sure. No, everyone needs to just calm down. But I have to say- I think it's just people love what they love and they don't want sort of the ride to ever end. Right. Which I get. I mean, listen, I have to say, I, Jessica made the entire series for me. I don't think it would have been- I I mean, it just, what it was, there were no words, but I had this weird, I don't know if it's weird, maybe it's just human, but I had compassion for her at the reunion because I just can't imagine watching yourself back and have, and just the complete humiliation she must've felt. It must've been horrible. Yeah. You know, I think it's hard. I think it's, I think I just, I think there are people who are, made to go on reality television. I think there are people who are not made to go to reality television. And I think that sometimes someone who's not ready to see themselves goes on reality television and it's a very, very harsh reality. You know, I don't, because here's the thing. I don't think Jessica's a bad person. I don't think she's some sort of insidious monster who lives to destroy the lives around her. I don't think it's that complicated, right? I think she was someone who was put in a situation and maybe sort of just got in too deep and did not extricate herself from that. And you, and then you saw what happened, you know? And I think that happens a lot with reality television specifically is you always see these people, you know, when the show ends, they don't know what to do with that version of fame that they now have. And then you get people like, you know, Adrena Patridge and the, you know, from the Hills are these people who kind of like continue to try to churn out that machine and it no longer exists for them. And I think, you know, and I don't think Jessica's that. I think she's someone who really saw what saw what she saw on the show and didn't like it and is trying to sort of, you know, move past it. I think that's a good point. But I will argue that someone like her is exactly made for reality TV <laughs> because <laughs> well, maybe, of all the well, things we, you said. Yeah, we, we think, think so. so. <laughs> right. She's maybe not. She might have a different it. take on that. Exactly. Listen, I wish her well. Mm-hmm. I still continue to yeah. believe there's no way she's 34, but that's fine. And it seems like a fair bet. <laughs> okay. All right. So you dropped some juicy goss, um, mm. bitch sesh about the reunion because we as fans were disappointed in the reunion. I mean, you're sure. a Housewives fan. You know how yeah. it's done. So yes. So it was. It did not. If it did not live up to expectations, but there's a reason for that. So for people who did not hear you explain it on Bitch Sesh, tell us why the reunion was not the the level that it should have been. Well, I mean, I I think. Are you referring to the the seating situation or? Well, it just what? wasn't the seating. It was the lack of anything, any drama, really. Like all the questions we wanted to know were not answered. Yeah. Well, listen, I think, I think the thing about love is blind is that it was designed as an experiment in love. And I think everyone who made the show saw the show that way. And I think that, you know, sitting there and talking to Jessica about giving wine to her dog for 30 <laughs> minutes, you know, what, what answer were you going to get that was really going to, you know, satiate that need? I think what was, you know, important to the producers and the people who made the reunion was, you know, catching up with our town, ta- with our cat, with our couples was, was catching up with our couples and, you know, seeing how the, you know, Jessica felt about watching the show and Mark felt about watching the show And I think because, you know, Nick and Vanessa are very much believers 
in the experiment at its core, what was important to them was talking about that experience and less so, you know, about rehashing fights. Um, and so I think that was probably a part of, you know, if people felt that way, that might've been why, because the people steering the conversation were more interested in the love side than the hate side. Right. And we are, we, as the housewives Institute have been trained very differently. (laughs) We want to see the mess. For sure. And I, I just, I don't think that reunion and that cast was ever going to be that, you know, I understand the need. I'm the, I'm the biggest housewives fan there is, you know, I, I, I rewatched old seasons. I'm in the middle of rewatching New York season eight right now for no reason. Oh, let's talk Um, about that after. Sure. (laughs) And um, you know, but I think this, this was not a group of people who wanted to get messy because the truth is there really only was two sources of conflict in the show, right? Carlton and diamond, which we really got into and Mark Amber and Jessica, and I think, and Barnett. And I think, you know, that sort of dynamic was really between Jessica and Amber. They had the biggest issue because Amber and Amber felt like Jessica was being two-faced to her. And, you know, we got into it. I guess it's a matter of just how, how much time do people want us to spend on the same subject? Like, right. Like that, I could have had an hour on just that and been of course, so happy. For sure. But from a, <laughs> from a viewership perspective, what you would have seen was Jessica get progressively sadder and more right. upset. And, <laughs> right. you know, and it would have, I think, taken a turn that you wouldn't have actually wanted in the end. So I totally hear the feedback and we definitely, you know, it's a good learning, but at the same time, I think the, the show is not housewifey by nature, so the reunions are not going to be housewifey by nature either. Okay, fine. But didn't you <laughs> also say that when it was originally, it was sort of going to be more like an extra, not like this, you know, big yes. reunion, right? So that did that affect yeah. you think the way it was produced? I don't think so because you know that all happened after the fact. I think that I think that it could have been maybe. Um, it could, I think, I think there's a chance that the reunion could have leaned more into the territory, the housewife territory that you're talking about. But again, I don't know that, I don't know that, you know, poking those bears would have resulted in the kind of Bethany screaming at Luann fights that <laughs> we kind of expect from these moments. You know, those people are not those people. Like you have to remember if you go back and you look at the Real Housewives of Atlanta season one reunion or the New Jersey season one reunion, they are very calm. They are very, very, very calm experiences. The versions of Housewives reunions that we're talking about are now these women nine years in, right? So they have nine years of baggage and also nine years of learning what the audience wants from them. But when you go back, you know, that first Real Housewives of Atlanta reunion, they're sitting on disgusting couches and like not really talking to each other. And it's very slow. The version of reunions that, you know, people have come to expect are the evolution of 10 years of people doing this consistently. True. But I think on the other side of that, it also gave me a really deep appreciation that I didn't have for Andy's nuance and talent. I mean, I knew Andy was talented, but I didn't realize how much, how much talent it takes to navigate this and be able to poke the bear in a way that's not nasty or confrontational, but really does stir up the drama. It's completely. I can, it's really, yeah, it's a really, really hard needle thread. And again, you know, he's had, you know, 20 to 30 chances, bites at that apple to get it right too, you know? And so I think yes. with all practice comes, you know, perfection. 
Totally. Well, we are certainly psyched for season two of that show. It's going to be epic. Yes. And now, yes, you know, it's Corona proof. You're in a pod separated by <laughs> yeah, wall. It's I know, perfect. but they, they have to, but they have to be able to meet at some point. So we're going to have to wait. <laughs> okay. I want to just mention a few other Netflix uh, shows that I've really enjoyed this year and curious um, kind of yeah, what your favorites absolutely. are. I'm a sure. big fan of the original scripted as well. I love dead to me. I thought that was, that love. was actually on Obsessed. my top 10 of the year. Yeah. Right. That was incredible. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's Christina Applegate is someone I've loved forever. I loved yeah. her on Friends. I loved her on Samantha Who. Um, I think she's such a star. And I love this show as a vehicle for her because she really does do so well in drama and so well in comedy. And this blends it really, really well. Linda Cardellini is amazing. And I love James Marsden. And it's just Liz's writing is so, so good. I love that show. Agree 100%. And I think it's Christina's best role. I think it's the one that's like the, been the most suited to her as a person in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Because she is a little bit of that no bullshit. I don't have time for this kind of, you know, pussy footing around. Like she's very direct and yes. very professional and also very, very brilliant. Yeah. Did you hear um, her interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air? I didn't. So, no. Yeah. Take a listen. It's just exactly what you're saying. She yeah. kind of like Terry's, you know, America's treasure. And Christina, mm. I don't remember what she asked her, but Christina just was not having it. And, yeah, it's, and, and I, I do appreciate I, the boldness. Yeah. And I think that also comes from, you know, I think there are a certain collection of actors who have spent a true lifetime in this business. Right. And so I think when you've been in this business for as long as someone like Christina has, who's been, look, been working since she was a baby, but really professionally since Married with Children, which is 30 years ago, you know, I think you lose like the, the patience for pedantic interviewer ease, you know, like what was your favorite part about this role? I don't know. Getting paid for it was pretty great. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's sort of like a callus that gets built up to the, the repetitiveness, you know, and I think you see it. I think the problem comes in when you see that in younger actors who have not really earned the right to sort of have that kind of glibness, you know, but someone like Christina, I think she's earned the right to be in exactly who she is and live exactly how she does. And I love it. Yeah, same. Are you a big Crown fan? I am <laughs> with the asterisk that I love the actors more than I tend to love the show. I'm, but but I do love, but I think it's an amazing undertaking. How'd you feel about changing up the whole cast for the last season? Uh, I feel like if, 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 if the alternatives were that or Claire Foy and Matt Smith in weird old age makeup that they were slowly progressing, I think that would have been infinitely more distracting. I kind of love the idea, you know, in a very monarchy-esque analogy that, you know, there is this passing of the crown. There is this passing of the guard, you know, kings and queens give way to other kings and queens. And so it is kind of fitting to have other actors stepping into these roles. And also, frankly, you know, to have someone like Olivia Coleman take over for Claire Foy is such a cool experience as the viewers to watch sort of their two styles go hand in hand in the building of the same woman. I agree. I think this cast was equally as incredible. I mean, they're all just the top of the game. I will say, I think they could have waited one more season. She was only okay. 40 this past season. And I right. thought they aged her up. Maybe mm. the queen always looked older than her age, but I thought <laughs> the makeup would have been minimal to age Claire Foy up just to that. So I sure. feel like we could have gone one more season. Having said that, these actors were unbelievable and didn't yeah. miss a beat. And I felt as engaged in the story 
But I did feel like maybe it was a little premature on that. Sure, I hear that. And I think it's hard too, because I think people have such affection for Claire and Matt in those roles, you know, and just, and love them so much. Um, So I get that too. And it's a hard, you know, it's a hard um, task to think about sort of taking on, but if anyone can do it, you know, the great Olivia Coleman, I was thrilled to have her as a part of that She can do no wrong. And I mean, and Helena Bonham Carter, you know, it's just, it was very, very cool. Um, But, you know, Vanessa Kirby, I just think they all have such bright futures. I mean, those are three actors, you know, Vanessa, Olivia, I mean, Vanessa, Claire, and Matt, that I'll just follow anywhere. I mean, I'll see anything they make. Seriously. Incredible. So what about Grace and Frankie? I've watched every season, right? It's just so delightful. To me, me, Grace and Frankie is the perfect combination of two actors who have a deep, deep history and an incredible chemistry paired with just the pitch-perfect writing on Marta Kaufman team and their behalf. You know, it's such a great story that no one has ever told before because God forbid Hollywood tell a story about women in their 60s and 70s. Um, and 80s. So everything, yeah, and 80s. So everything <laughs> about it feels fresh. Everything about it feels new. Everything about it feels original. And yet it feels so familiar and comfortable that it's really, you know, when you have someone like Marta Kaufman, who is one of the all-time greatest, you know, sitcom writers, take tackling this subject matter with the team that she has, you know, it's it's truly bliss. I agree. It's, it, I want, it's wonderful. And another gem is that I love another uh, Netflix original gem is atypical. I just adore that show. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a really incredible sort of group of actors in terms of storytelling and the, you know, the, what they're tackling and how deftly they do it, you know, not only just Sam, but also like Izzy and like everyone's, you know, storyline is so beautiful and fully realized and, you know, really just emotional. Like there's so much emotion in that show. Yes. While also managing to be funny. What I love about atypical is that it is atypical in the sense that I can't compare it to any other show, right? Right. There's nothing that really. No, I couldn't think of anything. Yeah. I mean, I think what's great too about like the family sitcom drama genre is there really is a lot of ways you can take it if you focus on the interpersonal relationships, right? If you actually build a show around, you know, a mother and son's dynamic and then the mother and daughter's dynamic and the mother and husband's dynamic versus like, oh, this family's poor now, go, right? Like if you actually (laughs) build it in the true emotions that they have, that to me feels like the place you can have a long running show. I mean, look, for good or for bad, Modern Family is a show built upon relationships, right? It's a little more sitcom in nature. It's a little more joke, 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 punchline. But that show succeeds because one, smart, smart writing. And two, it really is about the ongoing relationships that those family members have. You know, that's what it's built on. And that's really why it's gone for 600 seasons. Is there ever a show that you have to watch for work and get excited about and tweet about that you're just not that into? I I don't. I mean, look, as a, from the from Netflix, you know, I support all of our titles as meaningfully as I can. Um, personally, I'll just say that you know, I don't tweet about things that I don't personally stand behind. So I would never tweet about a show because I felt an obligation to from my personal account. I would never, you know, suggest something that I don't suggest because the truth is, you know, there's two things at play sort of with this sort of, you know, social media marketing world. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, I was a good fit for this job and I got hired is because I had, you know, 
an established following on social, proving that I know how to work in that space, right? So I had, you know, been doing a lot of stuff on my own personal Twitter when I was a journalist. And so you have to build up a credibility, you know, and it's what you see across political reporters and entertainment reporters. You know, I always said that, you know, none of us are really having true exclusives anymore. You know, there's really no such thing as an exclusive. Um, there's shared exclusives on news and things like that. So what you're really doing is you're cultivating a following that cares to hear the news from you specifically. And if they, they have to trust you and want to hear it from you in order for that to be true. And so one of the ways I do that is I, I, I think it's pretty clear that I don't promote things just because I work at Netflix. You know, I'm always talking about Amazon shows and Hulu shows and FX shows and HBO shows and AMC shows, you know, if I love something, I love it. And that's one of our, truly, that's one of our, you know, guiding principles at Netflix, you know, first and foremost, we are fans of entertainment wherever it lives, you know? So there's been times when I've congratulated, you know, I told everyone from the Netflix account to go watch Killing Eve because it's one of the most groundbreaking shows I feel like we've had in a long time. And it, you know, it got all this press and all these people wrote about it because the idea of one brand directing people to another brand is really unusual. But that to me is a sign that, you know, we champion great entertainment no matter where it is, because our goal is just entertaining our members. And if our members are entertained somewhere else, that's awesome because we just want them to have that joyful experience. And we know that they will continue to sort of come back because we're also delivering that kind of content. Yeah. I love that. So do you have any, lastly, um, three deep dive recommendations that we may not know about that are not in the zeitgeist? Okay. Well, I mean, some are, some aren't. So there's a, there's a Spanish language drama called Elite that I'm a huge proponent of. I thought it was elite, but Elite makes sense. That's on my list. It is one of my absolute favorite shows. I, it's basically if how to get, how to get away with murder took place in the world of gossip girl. Yes. It's, it's brilliant. Everyone is so attractive. (laughs) I love that show with all of my heart. The third season just wrapped up and I actually think it was their best one yet. So how many seasons Two, three, three seasons. Oh, I got it. It's going to be yeah. a long quarantine. Yeah. Okay, good. That's on my list. What <laughs> so, else? So I love that. Uh, season four of Kim's convenience just premiered on Netflix. It's a Canadian show. It's about this, uh, family that runs a convenience store. It's so funny. It's if you like Shit's Creek, you'll love Kim's convenience. I highly recommend that. And then the other one I'll recommend is a, we, it's, we have one season of it. It's a unscripted show called styling Hollywood. It oh, follows, I love it. I tried yeah. to get those guys on the podcast. Yeah, Jason and Adair are yes, awesome. I you get great it. turns from Gabrielle Union, from Taraji P. Henson, from just, you know, really, really cool up and coming amazing stars. And their dynamic as husbands who work together is really great. And I felt like it should have been a bigger deal. And I kept trying to tell people to watch it. And it just, you know, it, 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 I, never, I felt it deserved to be like queer eye big. You know, I how agree. Did, how did, they should have come yeah. on my podcast. Big miss, guys. I agree. Is there going to be a season two or no? Who knows? You know, I mean, li- literally right now with everything that's going right. on in the world, it's hard to say. You yeah. Know? No, but I really enjoyed I, it. But I love them. I love them. Yeah. They're really, they, I like them a lot. Um, okay. Last question. You mentioned Real Housewives yes. in New York season eight. What remind yes. me what season that is? I've seen every so, episode. So it's the season where Jules is there and Bethany oh. and John during his boyfriend are fighting all the time. And she does the, you look a little lit up right now. Why don't yeah, you go blow, blow some, some rails? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was that season. And that's also the, Please don't tell me it's about Tom. It's about Tom. So it's truly iconic. It's one of the best. Iconic. Going through it, going through it again has been such a joy. Reveling in their misery is such a joy to me at all times. (laughs) I agree. John is 
something. I know. Else. Are they he's done really, he's, in real life? Like it's in present time? I don't know. It is I'm unclear. not sure. I mean, he hasn't been on in a minute. I'm recapping um, New York uh, t- tomorrow with uh, my fellow podcaster Aaron Martin. I'm really excited. To so talk good. About I know. It. I'm so. We're about to enter a a beautiful time for Bravo because we've got Housewives of Beverly Hills, Housewives of New York, and Potomac coming back. At the I same know. Time. Are you a Summer House guy too? I can't get into Summer House. It's weird. I, but I love Vanderpump. Well, I used to love Vanderpump. I'm yeah. think I'm ju- think I'm jumping ship. This season has been terrible. Yeah, I have um, to say, I did not think I would be a Summer House fan at yeah. all. It is so not my cut. Like I grew up in New York. I right. hate. I mean, I love the Hamptons. Hate Hamptons. Yeah. Hate the whole share thing. Yeah. Cannot stand watching millennials just be stupid and get drunk. I, I, I hats off to the producers because I okay. am addicted to that show, and I have no idea yeah. why. Everyone says season two is the one that hooks you. And I think my mistake was starting with three. So maybe I'll have to go. go well, back. well, do you know who Brian Moylan is from Vulture? I, I am familiar with Brian. Yeah. Okay. So Brian recommended, cause I just started with season four. He says, well, you have to go back and watch three. So I spent my $15 oh, interesting. and I bought it on Amazon and I'm about halfway through. And I can say the great thing about summer house is you can do six other things and still catch yeah. all the necessary storylines. Like I get emails done. I can do research on other things and I still, <laughs> it's like a soap opera. Like you still can go away and know exactly what's going on. Fully. That's the, that's the beauty of it. Right. right. Very Thank little you. changes. Exactly. Thank you. Bravo. <laughs> well, Jared, this has been so fun. Where can people find you on social media and follow all your handles, et cetera? For sure. Yeah. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Jared says, uh, one R two T's. Right. Which is a classic mistake. I noticed. So happy, you know, listen, my parents cursed me with the worst spelling of a very sort of common name, I guess, but they liked to be creative. Yeah. I should have asked you this a million years ago, but where'd you grow up? I grew up in Jersey. I was going to say, you seem like an East coast guy. Oh where, yeah, for sure. We, can, we can sense we can sense our own. Yeah. I'm from North Jer- North Jersey, a town called Randolph, which is right near Morristown. Yeah. Oh, okay. My whole family, aunts, uncles, or whatever, all in the Caldwells. Oh, nice. Oh, so, super close. Yeah, very close. And lastly, cool. I should say, and I usually start with this, that I need to thank my friend Deanna Ching for introducing us. She yes. was on Bitsesh with you and the gals, yeah, that's right. and I love her to death. Yeah, she's um, the best. She's the best, and such a great connector and just great supporter. Um, a great actor, director, blah, blah, blah. She's the best. Yes. So thank you, Deanna. thank you, Deanna. Thank you, Jared. I hope thank that we you. get to talk again. Anytime. Thank you. Bye. 